Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, everyone. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. Actually, that's a, that's a bit of a lie. This week is, is one of those guest episodes we sometimes do. When we've done those in the past, it's normally been because I've been on someone else's podcast and it's kind of a good, you know, it's a good freebie. This time is a little bit different though. Uh, this is actually, this is all you're going to hear from me, this introduction. We're going to hear most of an episode of a podcast called City Talks. City Talks, if you don't know, it's a monthly podcast put out by, uh, by the Centre for Cities think tank. Uh, the centre have been great supporters of ours for a number of years. They they know more about Britain's cities than than the mind can comfortably contain. And I was listening to an episode of of their podcast from from well a while ago, from last May, in fact. And I was thinking, you know what? This is a really great interview. This is exactly the kind of thing that I'd love to do on on Skyline sometime. And I thought, well, why why can't I? You know, I mean, I run. I, I run articles by the Centre for Cities guys, kind of talked vaguely about maybe I could sort of reuse some episodes of the podcast sometime, and I thought, you know what, let's just ask. And then, you know, they're nice guys, they said, yeah, sure. So what you're about to hear is most of an episode of City Talks from May 2017. I say most because I come out about 10 minutes at the, the very beginning, uh, in which the host Andrew Carter speaks to some of his colleagues about about current events that were taking place in, in May 2017, like the Metro Mayor elections. Uh, that, that didn't seem quite so relevant a year on, although, you know, Sheffield, so who knows, maybe. But uh, the, the rest of the podcast was a fascinating interview with a guy called Mike Emmerich, who's just written, well, he literally wrote the book on Britain's cities. So from here on, this is just City Talks, and I'll be back to our normal service next week. Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Why did Britain's cities, once the engines of the Industrial Revolution and the envy of the world, decline so dramatically? What is fooling their tentative revival and what needs to be done if our major cities are once again to be the engines of Britain's economy? Mike Emmerich's new book, Britain's Cities, Britain's Future, answers these questions, drawing out the lessons of the last 200 years. In the book, book, Mike argues that only by really understanding these lessons do we have any hope of creating a prosperous post-Brexit Britain. Mike is uniquely well, uniquely well placed to write this book. He's worked at the heart of British government in the Treasury at number 10, and for the last decade or so, he has played a central role in the devolution revolution in Greater Manchester. Mike, welcome to City Talks. Hello. So let's start off with, give us a motivation as to why you wanted to write the book, um, why you felt it was important now, and then we'll get into some of the detail of what the book was looking at. Oh, I wrote the book because Diane Coyle asked me to do uh, to do it. I've been blogging a bit um, since we started Metrodynamics. And, uh, as, as ideas have come to me, I've, I've, I've sort of put pen to paper, so to speak, and and written stuff, and, and I thought there was a, a voice waiting to get out with some bigger ideas, which she, she took me for breakfast, and we, we agreed that, that, that I should write a book in her series. And I guess, I guess the question is, you know, not why cities and why economics and politics, because that's been my life for 30 years. Yeah. The guess, I guess the, the, the question really you're asking is, why do a sort of historical piece um, 
Um, because what what I tried to do really was to ground everything I've been doing in my career, which is you know three quarters of the way through. It feels like a good time to take stock. Uh, well, I hope it's three quarters of the way through. Um, um, and and and, and ask some questions. And what really struck me because um, I've, I've been involved in heritage, shows on the heritage lottery fund board and things like that was you know, knowing enough economic history to know that Britain more or less invented the modern city mm. and knowing that at one point, you know, cottonopolis and the cotton textiles industry was, was the overwhelming majority of Britain's ex, uh, exports. Yeah. How on earth had we contrived to become a place like, like, like Britain today where, even after the most sustained period of leadership with billions of pounds spent during the, the longest boom since records began, We've still got cities that on most figures are economically weak and, and are, are politically weak too. And I'd seen ministers and, and um, um, uh, uh, leaders of every party try and wrestle with this. And, and yet these seemed intractable problems. And so it just seemed to me as I thought about this that there was something deeper going on here that I hadn't seen written up in, in a way that was satisfactory for my kind of audience, a policy, an economically literate policy sort of audience. So I decided to, to take a, a sort of a, 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 an historical perspective so that what, what, will, you know, what I hope will come out of it, though of course I wasn't sure, was um, something that might give us some clues about the way Britain developed and why it is that... Um, that despite being first, despite being in some senses best in class mm. at the time, uh, we seem to have really laboured with this process of economic development, uh, economic development, urban regeneration, spatial imbalances. Uh, and that's why, that's why I took the, yeah. the historical perspective. So let, let's get into that. So just start off with what's the time period that we're looking at? You talk, we talk about the Industrial Revolution, but just, you know, where are we starting from? And paint a picture of... Of, um, of Britain, I suppose, at, at that point, and then we can look forward as the Industrial Revolution really got underway. So, so yeah, I, there's a very quick look at what happened before the Industrial Re- Revolution, and, and yeah, there's been a, big, been a big debate on Twitter this week. Could the Industrial Re- Revolution have happened somewhere Indeed, else? Indeed, I was so reading really that. Yeah. I mean, oh, fascinating. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely fascinating. But I start before the Industrial Revolution because, it, you know, what's clear is it wasn't some magic thing that happened everywhere at the same time. It wasn't about you know, climatic conditions. It wasn't even just about factors of production. It wasn't about luck, though all of those things played a role. A lot of it was due to the fact that in the pre-industrial period, um, you know, Britain had been internationalising. It had been, it had a good period uh, of growth. There'd been um, land reform, so there's a lot of surplus labour mm. as, as the Enclosure Act uh, 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 freed up huge amounts of labour yeah. uh, here and, and potato famine uh, in Ireland meant that there was potential to use uh, labour that had never previously been available. Of course, the heart of it is innovation, yeah. is that uh, tightly, uh, tightly knit communities, um, small communities in in Lancashire especially, uh, South East Lancashire especially, um, North East Cheshire, places like that, that they, that they were where some of the people who had these, uh, these innovative ideas decided to set up shop and to try and use these machines, these ideas, to, to start to manufacture on a larger scale. Yeah. And, that's, and it's, it's, a, it's a whole series of things. There's, you, know, you can look for a monocausal explanation and there isn't one. No. Um, but the fact that Arkwright & Co. decided, who Arkwright started in Derbyshire, yeah. But actually moved to Lancashire because he realised that that was a better place to do it because it, they had all, all the advantages of Derbyshire in terms in terms of uh, raw materials, in terms of uh, 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 access to water, whatever. But there was something about the foment of, of what was already going in Lancashire. Other people who were who were working on ideas. There were ready populations, and there were people to work in the new uh, the new factories. Yeah. And that's it's that proto-industrial period that I think seems to mark out. Um, the, the Lancashire cotton industry in particular as being different. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I hope I've, I've done him uh, uh, justice, but Nick Craft's work yes. on this at Warwick, Brilliant. absolutely fundamentally, you know, the thing I've read probably more than anything else, you know, because to talk about a, a, a generalised industrial revolution, something that happened at the same time across the whole country in every industry, just doesn't seem to square with the data. What seems to have happened, for sure, there, were, there, there was development, industrial development uh, in, in lots of places and lots of sectors, but it was the cotton industry, and to, to a degree the iron industry, that seems in, in certain places to have 
have, have, have taken an agricultural revolution and to take the people, the capital, the ideas and turn it into an industrial revolution. Yeah. And that, that was a kernel of, of the argument that I started with. And, and in part, part of the, your, I was interested in that immediately from the outset, you know, you're talking about um, economic change, you're talking about political change, technological change, but you're also then looking at how the core evolution of community and societal and religious institutions, you know, see, you know, is is embedded into and is connected to and is driving some of that economic change as well. In a sense, a lot of analysis treats these things as two separate, doesn't it? You know, rather than looking at it uh, in the round. And you know, I think you say a bit more about that, but I thought that was a really fascinating insight about how those things uh, things were happening uh, alongside each other in parallel and feeding off each other as well. If you've, if you've done what I've done for a living, you know, for a lot of my life, working in a place or now in, in different places, you know, you, there's only so much you can ever get from the economic statistics. Yeah. You know, why is it that, you know, I was in Liverpool yesterday, why is it Liverpool feels so different to Manchester mm. and feels so different to Newcastle or Cardiff? Yeah. Um, when, when you know, after, after 200 years of global competition, you know, the, the forces affecting every area are, are, are literally global. The, a lot of the shops are the same, people drink the same beer, they go yeah. watch the same films. And yet, today, you go to these places and they feel distinctively different. There's something about the places themselves that mm. goes beyond the, um, uh, that goes beyond the, the economic. And, you know, I'm, I've, I've, I've been accused of being an economic fascist by a former colleague of my University of Manchester, an epistemological fascist to be precise, <laughs> but it was the economics she was referring to. Um, uh, and and and, but I, I I will be among the first, probably not the first, but certainly not the last either, to say these data are telling us really important things. Of course, the data when when you go back in time aren't great, which no. is why Nick Kraft's work is yeah. so fundamentally important for for everything we do. Um, but you you know as as you as you look at places that the buildings. Uh, the uh, the culture has been influenced by a journey, and that can't be explained solely in terms of the businesses. And I, of course, like everybody else who was working in government during the uh, uh, last part of, of the old millennium and, and, and into the noughties, you know, uh, the whole social capital debate was yeah. a big debate for us, uh, particularly the work of Bob Putnam, the notion of of, of bonding social capital and bridging social capital and how that affected places. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to just look at places through that lens and see see what what they could teach us? And for sure, what comes out of that is exactly what Peter Hall wrote about in a very different language, yeah. but meaning exactly the same thing, which is, of course, what Alfred Marshall was writing yeah. about using a different language Absolutely. again. Yeah. And then everybody's fed off all of those, those guys later on. Is that... Is that it wasn't about markets, though markets were fundamental. It was about relationships. It was about kith and kin. Yeah. It was about community. And, you know what the, the picture you get reading the stories of of you know quite quite modest small towns as well as big cities mm. uh, is of places that were very very different to the prevailing uh, culture of Anglo-Saxon England as mm. it had obtained for for hundreds of years since the since the Reformation. Of non-conformist cities, of Catholic cities, with sizable Jewish populations as well, where there was a melting pot. They were yeah. very American. I mean, the more you look at Cotnopolis and some of these, some of the other cities, because uh, Cotnopolis is a term that was used, used for Manchester, but yeah. you have Worcesteropolis in, in in Bradford yeah. or, or 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 a whole host of other places. The more they start to look like a counterculture, almost like a San Francisco type counterculture of their time. But with religion playing a role, uh, and that religion being absolutely nothing like restricted to the chapel, though, it, or, or indeed the synagogue, though, though they played a big role. But it underpinned the education system. Yeah. Uh, it underpinned uh, underpinned the politics of these places, and seems to have been one of the arteries of, of bonding social capital that through which these places yeah. came to be. What, yeah, what and, they were. And, and those issues. I mean, as you said, those issues, those elements were not by any means incidental you know they were fundamental to you know the evolution and the revolution in some respects that was going on in our urban areas whether it's Manchester and the you know the, the smaller towns around it or Leeds and Bradford and what was going on there or Birmingham you know the, the factors you, you're talking about were fundamental to you know to how those cities evolved and grew incredibly rapidly over a very very short period of time. 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, if your kids can't go to university, if they are, to, in some important respects, second-class citizens in the country because they're not Anglicans in this you know, uh, uh, late 18th, early 19th century period, that forces people into each other's arms. I mean, yeah. I, I quote the example of, uh, of Owens College in Manchester, which became uh, one, of the, one of the founding bits of the University of Manchester, where he literally uh, had no kids himself, but he, he, he bequeathed a lot of money to set up an institution where neither the teachers nor the students had to, had to pass any sort of religious test. And, it, you know, that was because he'd grown up in an area, he was a nonconformist, and he's, he'd seen that there was a need for this. And uh, in a funny sort of way, that, that you know, well, it, was, it had been religious persecution until relatively recently, and so it was certainly... Yeah. Uh, it was certainly uh, religious minorities finding, as they do in modern cities today, uh, in uh, different religions by and large, not exclusively, but by and large, you know, they, they, they create subcultures and, and people come together because of their difference. Yeah. The other difference, and you alluded to it then in terms of growth, is, is the size of this, uh, this phenomenon. I mean, now, anyone who worries about population change in British <laughs> cities ought to get their head around the fact that Manchester's population went up from like 90 to 300,000 in a period of 40 years. Yeah. I mean, that is a major expansion of population. It was too fast, it was too much, and there were horrendous social consequences as a, as, as, as a result. But um, uh, and well, those people who were coming, most of them, Certainly, a, a very large proportion of them weren't established uh, members of, of, the, of the High Anglican Church. They were nonconformists, and, and they were Catholics. Because a lot of them came over from Ireland. Yeah, and one of the interesting elements you talk—I mean, I think if I remember, you know, Manchester is regarded as what the first industrial city. And I think in the book you, you're quite clear about that. Many of the changes, many of the revolution, many of the uh, technological innovation many of the institutions were non-political, you know, in the sense they were very much driven by either the landed aristocracy, which were actually lent, making capital available in in quite an open and interesting way, but also by uh, entrepreneurs and business people themselves, that they were very much at the forefront of city building rather than, you know, in a more classic modern sense, we class city building as being something that primarily is done by the public sector. But... Is that right? In the sense, it was a very much a, an entrepreneurial or non-political driven process when we we see Manchester evolve and develop. Yeah, I mean, this you know, um, perhaps we'll come on in a bit to the sort of critiques of of, yeah. of, of, of what what I've written. Um, but you know, a lot of those critiques come from an analysis that says that you know politics should do more. There should be more interventionist yeah. uh, 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 regional policy with more uh, investment and more direction in in a in a French or a German uh, or a Scandinavian sense. And um, again, that's part of the reason for, for deciding. To, you know, I'm not an historian. I don't, I don't, I don't have a, a history qualification. Um, but the reason for doing it was because. I had a I had a whole sense that there was a story here, and there is a story. It is that um, you know the world described in in a Hard Times by Charles Dickens of, of entrepreneurs of utilitarianism. Though I think it is a it is a substantially inaccurate picture, has elements of truth about it. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know the, the the business people. I think they were largely businessmen of the late eighteenth and early to mid nineteenth century believe profoundly and passionately in the power of markets and in the power of their businesses and in the supremacy of business and you know looking ironically to Florence as their model which of course had a very strong government which uh, funded a great deal of of, 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 of of Renaissance art and as a as a consequence of that you know places like Manchester had I think no parliamentary representation uh, had no municipal authorities because these are essentially new places mm. um uh, uh, I think there is an element of hubris about this, and, and what happened was, you know, to, to take one example, the, the Anti Corn Law League, which is probably the movement with which uh, Cottonopolis and the, those cotton towns were most associated, had done nearly all of its work, uh, achieved its goal, had achieved its goal before Manchester had a, a city. Yeah. Um, and and that can't be unlinked to the fact that there was a public health crisis. No. You know. It, it, Growing three hundred a three hundred thousand population in yeah. in in you know thirty forty years, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, building houses 
uh, on a very large scale, very often almost exclusively in working class areas without sanitation, you know, created a public health crisis, which which good government would have would would have, would, would, would have helped yeah. resolve absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So there's no doubt about it no. that, that 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 that's part of the story. Now, the interesting thing is not that that was a fact at the time. That it's it's what did that mean for what happened next? next. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's right, um, and I think I mean, what's interesting in the book. And you see this in other examples as well. You know, think about some other cities that you referred to. I mean, actually talk a little bit about comparing, you know, the the dominance and influence of cotton in, in industrial Manchester with the dominance and influence of financial services in, mm. you know, current London. And I think, you know, the sense that if we're not careful, the very reasons why places do well, ultimately also sow the seeds of their decline if they're not managed carefully or not thought about carefully and I think you know there's there's a lot in the book around just as Manchester was reaching its you know its zenith in terms of its uh, market share in certain industries at the global scale never mind at the national scale already you know there were there were weaknesses in the system that as the as the prevailing conditions changed became much more obvious and evident yeah uh, I mean probably most you know, this is this is a very short book. It's a policy perspective. Yeah. It's a provocation, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's relatively limited time and scope to 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 undertake extensive research. But I I got drawn deeper and deeper into looking uh, research on uh, on nineteenth century cities and in particular on the this kind of the, the nature of, of urbanisation around the world. And what is absolutely clear there's, there's some lovely quotes I know from from Education Commission. Was that it was it was painfully obvious by the eight, by the sort of mid to late nineteenth uh, century that that this phenomenon of very business led small state capitalism mm. in in nineteenth century uh, England in particular had a weakness, which is that the people who'd learned from that who didn't who didn't have the the costs of first mover uh, 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 disadvantage who were the second movers uh, Prussia. Uh, later, Germany and, and uh, uh, Japan and, and uh, America, they 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 found a different and better way. Mm. And, and you know, uh, the Prussians in particular decided, as a matter of, of state policy, to invest in skills. And they worked out that if they were ever going to catch catch us, that's what they had to do. Yeah. And we could never respond to that. And and in part, it's because I don't think we wanted to. Right. I think I, we, we. And if you think about 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 how I go back to that. Critique of, uh, of of what uh, you know, people. There's a lot of people in academia, especially, would say, "Well, we need better, stronger, deeper government." Something with which, in some senses, I would I would personally agree. But our prevailing culture has never seen mm-hmm. politics in that central no. sense. I mean, you know, I remember in Treasury, a lot of people used to argue routinely that France isn't a capitalist nation in any sense. It's actually, you know, the anarchs run the whole yeah. whole damn thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you don't have to agree with that to see that that politics goes deeper into into the fabric and government goes deeper into the fabric of the country than it ever has on a successful basis here. Yeah. And my argument is that that's not an accident. That's not a little thing. It's the path dependency of how we grew as a country means that we just don't want government. We just don't seem to want government doing things that other countries seem to want governments to do. And I think that is to our cost. Yeah. And and, it, and it's, I crystallise it not by talking about government because actually it's not just government; it's it's institutions of every kind. It could be the church, though. Again, I don't I don't have a a, a particular flag to fly for the church. Mm. It could be government, or it could be business institutions. It could be innovation institutions. But but the 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 the, the mentality of the nineteenth century cotton entrepreneur, who is perhaps the kind of the caricature. Uh, par excellence of, of of the industrial revolution in Britain is somebody for whom government was was a bad thing. And yeah. I think that is now kind of hardwired into how we think as a country. Even the better, I have to say, by Margaret Thatcher in 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 what she did. Now, yeah, you know, whatever the rights and wrongs of, of of what had to be done in Britain and whether or not you know something was needed after Barbara Castle was beaten on in place of strife, which I think is 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 probably true. The version of capitalism that she tried to sell us mm. of cold, hard, clinical markets and small entrepreneurs, whilst it is indeed a part of, of every economy, is actually quite a small part of successful economies where the socialisation of business 
uh, through institutions of innovation. We can talk about some great Absolutely, examples of yeah, that uh, uh, through in innovation skills and other things, or, or just statutory chambers in, in, in continental Europe. These are a fundamental part of, of why it is that other economies have got stronger governance of a private sector kind, a, a, a public sector kind, a, a, a previously a religious kind as well. And that might, my point is that that might be part no, of no, the story of, of their yeah. success. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The, uh, the distinctions you draw between uh, almost the, you know, the, the different approaches of Germany, Prussia and Britain uh, in that period uh, in, the, in the way that we thought about Skills, I just thought was you know such a fantastic insight into a much bigger issue. You know, learning on the job, you know, very much providing the skill that was required to do the job today, but not necessarily tomorrow. Whereas you know, as you say, second mover places thought much had a much more comprehensive perspective about education and, that, and, and skills, and, and then applied it. Yeah, Nick Crafts and others yeah. have, uh, who've not done the international yeah. research. See, you can see it. Yeah. There was you know, this wasn't just. Uh, um, it was a valid competitive strategy that businesses here chose to take but there's pretty clear evidence I mean there's so much on which there isn't clear evidence yeah. I mean that's yeah. one of the things that, that shocked me perhaps as a PhD <laughs> yeah. um, there's, there's, yeah. there is clear evidence that, that as the industrial revolution wore on the returns to investment in human capital innovation went up quite significantly yeah. and we never secured those in the ways that yeah. the places who had a different form of industrialisation succeeded in yeah and is that, I mean, is there a sense, is that largely, well, I say largely, I mean, that's really part of the, well, part of the explanation for, you know, why we saw quite rapid, really, decline of our, of our industrial cities in that, you know, they didn't have these institutional arrangements, these interlocking, interlocking networks that allowed them to respond to and adapt to the prevailing market global conditions as the you know as the cotton industry globalized and competition was you know felt in India and in the US and everywhere else the institutions weren't able to be you know to be able to respond in that way and so we just saw this this gradual uh, decline is that it? I mean I, I the truth is that in relation to cities we don't know I mean if yeah. if, if, if if the research is out there I couldn't find it no. Uh, I mean, your own Paul Swinney, others have yeah. done some research that, that was really uh, that I use in the book that's really important in helping me tell the story. The best guess that, that I, I can make uh, is, that, is that what you just said is right. Um, that, that, you know, there was an element of hubris in, in the British industrial model uh, that we had. You know, we were, we were massively dependent on these firms for our cotton, for our exports. Cotton exports, I think at one point, was, uh, sorry, for textiles exports at one point was 70% by value of all Britain's exports. So that's seven zero percent And and exactly as you describe, as a second wave, second and third waves of industrialisation happened, uh, um, uh, they they had different models that seemed to add more more value. You know, the uh, uh, transport patterns changed. The, the value of proximity 
uh, uh, that was so fundamentally important in, in Britain in the early 19th century was less important as, as, as the car came on stream. There's all these, all these factors uh, contributed. But the, the, the key point you make is, I think is right, it's that at the point where those cold winds start to blow, do those, do those firms battle alone, doing what they've always done, you know, competing down wages, uh, uh, stealing each other's staff, mm. or is there a socialised system that understands that this is not a threat to any one company, it's a systemic threat to the place, to the industry, yeah. and, and work to solve it? And, you know, I remember as a, as, as a treasury, just to give you an example of how this is, this is an issue, probably not today, but certainly not in, in the course of my working lifetime. Uh, if there's one contrast I would draw, I went on a, on a sort of clusters visit when I was in the treasury yeah. with, with uh, the financial secretary to the treasury at the time, Stephen Timms. Uh, and we looked at the third Italy. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, we went to Modena and I remember going into a demo centre for the auto industry. And there was funded partly by the uh, employers' organisation, partly by the communist-controlled uh, regional authority, uh, was a demo centre with some some people who were uh, re- basically reverse engineering a piece of Japanese or Korean kit, yeah. um, uh, ready for a bunch of entrepreneurs coming in to, uh, to to look at what they could learn from it. Yeah. And then the next day, at a as, as a group of small medium enterprises in the town uh, in a, a town in, in southern Lombardy, where where they were making a very huge proportion of the, of of, uh, of the EU's Stock of uh, of um, dialysis uh, disposable equipment mm-hmm. and and um, blood bags. Yeah, and that was SMEs working together. If I contrast that with two examples I found in my career, I remember in about nineteen ninety one, ninety two, when I was uh, 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 much younger. I remember doing work in Luton's hat sector, where I, I went to with people in very much informed by the work of Beccatini and Porter and all these other people, going to talk to them about about whether or not they'd ever cooperate. Yeah. What I suggested to serially in one-to-one interviews that hat man- to hat manufacturers that they might want to do something other than cooperate on the annual colour swatch, they they thought this was an abominable suggestion. Yeah. I remember asking some of these guys, "What would you do if one of the competitors came and knocked at the door?" I said, "Well, we'd slam the door in the face so they couldn't <laughs> see what we were doing." Yeah, I found the s- same thing in the Norfolk boat building yeah. industry, which is a great industry, yeah. where we could double, quadruple, quintuple output. But there's no great desire to do it because they're happy doing the bespoke thing they do. Mm. This speaks to me, and these are two slightly random examples, yes. a counter-post uh, against a very different example in the third Italy, of, 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 of how this wider culture, which actually in there is its origins to some really deep historic factors, how they can produce very different forms of activity where yeah. in one it seems okay to work together, to collaborate with some people one day and then to compete against them the next. Whereas ours is individualist that says that, that you know, business associations and government has no real role in trying to get people together to yeah. collaborate and compete. Yeah. It's down to us. Something that I think that, you know, the worst bits of, of Thatcherism seem yeah. to uh, very much to emphasise over, over and above a version of markets that I think is a far wiser, richer one, which is that they are human constructions where relationships matter, where if you can do things together, you can very often uh, achieve more than if you just have a, a model of naked yeah. competition yeah. with and, no collaboration. And of course, that, that observation, which I think you make in the book, um, of contrasting modes of operation, modes of, uh, of organisation, uh, which are deeply uh, ingrained in the history, the culture, the institutional arrangements of those places, I think you do say this in the book, means that whilst we can observe what goes on in Spain or Barcelona yeah. or Germany yeah. and Munich, um, our ability to, to borrow fundamentally uh, and replicate what they're doing is is going to be a very, very tall order, a very, very significant challenge as well. I think you say that yeah, in the book in, terms. Terms, in part because of these long run, deeply ingrained, kind of quite fundamental differences that operate at the you know, at different levels. Um yeah, yeah. I I, I do say that and I mean it. And I don't say it with any great joy either. No. I mean, no. you know, just take a chamber of commerce. Um what is a chamber of commerce? Well it means something very different here to what it means in Hamburg. Yeah. And, you know, personally I I intellectually quite like the idea of a statutory chamber of commerce. Yeah. In which in which a business association has 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 a and into every business because they're because they're paying the thing. Um, 
when Hesseltine floated the idea um, uh, under uh, as he, when he's when he did his no stone unturned report, and he actually did a specific report on the issue. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, people were falling about laughing in in, in large parts of Whitehall, th- thinking the man was a fool. I mean, and if you read the government's response to it, they say that the Treasury's response, they say they responded to it, and they didn't even give him the courtesy of responding. No. Uh, it's, because our conception of a chamber uh, uh, is, is very, very different. I'm curious, my office is based in the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce, and there's a debate I'm having with them about, about what would it take to have a more, yeah. a deeper role for chambers of commerce in helping knit business together to help spot opportunities, rather than having what we have in, it's a, it's a big chamber, biggest in the country, um, one that is essentially uh, at the whim of, of what members want on on any given yeah. day, with no great ability no. Uh, to cooperate, and so and, and so that's true in, in in so many other ways. So when we, you know, I was part of the group of people who invited Michael Porter over to the Treasury for the mm. first time mm-hmm. and started to investigate clusters, yeah. and and you know, quite predictably, within a very short period of time, what happened was that. We took the idea of clusters of, of dense networks of firms and demo centres like I was describing in Emilia-Romagna and patterns of competition and collaboration like you see throughout the third Italy. And we turned it into every market town in Britain decided it was going to be a biotech cluster yeah, without ever having understood the no. journey that you have to go through to get there, yeah. which would have led most of them to abandon what is a, a pretty absurd uh, uh, goal because they've got no, no skin in the biotech game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not quite. I, I, I want to. Well, we'll move on to in a, in a minute on to because, uh, as I said at the start, uh, you're not an academic, um, uh, and you know you're very interested in the policy questions and issues that reflecting on our urban history tell us about where we are today, particularly given where we are today in terms of you know the changes that we see in our urban areas and some of the institutional changes that are underway and hopefully will be embedded and, and expanded over time. But just just also in the book, as part of the explanation or as you begin to explore the kind of urban decline period mm-hmm. you know, after the post, you know, the post-industrial uh, decline, you raise some really interesting stories around um, local government and its ability to engage and respond to big challenges around public health, particularly, but not exclusively. And then some of the questions and issues that national government begins to think about and looks at these local governments and says, hang on, you know, these are big issues. You're not responding to these in the way that we deem appropriate. We are going to step in, which very quickly becomes a systemized approach, which, you know, you write, you know, you talk about ultimately leads us to the centralized system of health and education uh, and everything else that we, you know, we pretty much live with today, although it's been unpicked, you know, in, in the very recent past or begun to be unpicked. But just say a little bit more yeah. about that kind of interplay between, you know, the local government yeah. response, dealing with decline, their inability, unwillingness, whatever, and then why central government was kind of getting involved. I mean, I think there are two separate sets of arguments in that. The first is that um, you know, the real benefit for me, for, for, for me and, and some people who commented on the book, though not everybody, who's commented on the book, um, is that the real insight of the historical analysis is that the problems we are grappling with, to which we seem to, with which we really seem to struggle uh, uh, in, in parliamentary cycles to come up with answers, the reason we struggle with them is they're not small recent problems, they're 200-year-old yeah. issues. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the, the real insight that comes out, out, out of the history. But the other one, which goes directly to your point, is about, is about the nature of political power. And, you know... I this is a this is a new argument I think I've, I've certainly you know, many of the arguments I, I make in the book are ones that I've I've, I've I've borrowed and hopefully correctly attributed to others. But what really struck me were were looking at this was that you know if you had uh, these these new industrial cities who were generating who were the first time potentially challenging London's dominance as, mm. as, as the epicentre of the British economy, mm. generating all these exports, creating vast new places with millions of people in them, that at the moment of their biggest power, where, where the Anti-Corn Law League, you know, dealt a death knell to the, um, the aristocracy's grip on Parliament, uh, putting uh, the interests of business people and working people right at the heart of politics. Mm. You know, they did that, but what they never did... Was, was to do the things that were needed 
to get Parliament off their back on the long term. Right. Because they didn't fix their housing problems. They didn't fix their sanitation problems. They patently didn't fix their skills and innovation problems, which meant, which meant that the things, that if they'd done their, uh, their knitting properly on those, what should have been for them absolutely core issues, they, I think, would have developed in a far more fiscally autonomous, powerful way. I think they missed their moment. They had a moment mm. to strike a deal with what was in the 1850s a very, very rudimentary emergent form of national government in Britain. They had an opportunity to strike a deal and they blew it. And if that isn't a message for cities today, <laughs> I don't know what yes. is. And have you a sense as to, you know, what were the factors that, that enabled them or resulted in them missing that opportunity? I mean, it's hubris. I think it was hubris. It was, uh, it, I think, it's hard to read the histories of that, of that time and conclude anything other than they just they just didn't believe in in the power of, of their a business to, to solve problems and and of and of the role of charity in fixing uh, the things that they couldn't and you know the role of good government in Sienese style was was or Venetian or Florentine or, or Athenian or any of the precedents that, that, that they were fond to quote yeah. was was a, a, a was something that which seems with hindsight to have been an anathema to them yeah. Um, uh, and that's what led to that, you know, series of, uh, you know, whether it's the uh, the, the, the eighteen thirty five act that got rid of rotten boroughs, right the way through the series of, of sanitation uh, and other and housing reviews, you know, from from a national government machine in high Victorian that had no great desire to intervene. This was a national view about not, you know, wanting small government, yeah. but they had to do it because there were such manifest problems in the cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I completely. Uh, I, I think the, you know the one of the interesting element in the themes that runs through the book is you know that sort of honest reflective where opportunities were were presented or presented themselves and were missed by cities as much as by government and you know often you get critiques where you know the decline has been only you know it's all the problems of one side or the other and actually you know the opportunities go and get missed by lots of and certainly parallels to today in the sort of devolution conversations we've had in Different places and their inability exactly. to organise to do something. About and it's important it. to make a distinction because um, you know, at, at, at no point do I claim that local government wasn't very powerful during the that you, during the sort of you know late nineteenth right through the uh, early twentieth and uh, and later periods. There's a difference between local government being powerful as as, as holding big budgets, delivering services. Yeah. And there's a very big difference between that and cities and big civic authorities being powerful political players yeah. and shaping the destiny of the country. Yeah. Where I'd argue that the former can, can you, that these two can coexist, where you have local government that's a powerful agent of, of, of social change by delivering services, uh, which I think by the 20th century it clearly was, but, but having lost their power as national players in a way that, you know, I mean, the notion, you know, Andy Byrne just elected as a mayor of Greater yeah, Manchester. Yeah. This is a, a, an interesting step into a different world that you step away from being a would-be prime minister to being a mayor. Yeah. This is almost French. Yeah. You know, this is, a, this is a big movie. It's saying, actually, political power and the power of place and place leadership is a different issue to the, to, to the issue of service budgets. Now, they're related, yeah. but you can certainly have they're service different. budgets and still have no political yeah, power. Yeah, no, quite. Let's, um, let's turn to, uh, well, two things. Um, the, there's policy implications on the back of it, because I think you know, the second half of the book uh, begins to unpick you know, the different growth models that are advocated or at least illustrated and talked about in the way that we think about why growth. And clearly, you know, the, the title of the book Britain's cities, Britain's future. Clearly, you know, if, in your perspective, in my perspective, you know, having successful, strong, politically, economically vibrant cities is the only real way, I, I would argue, you might argue the same, to have a successful country. You know, in a sense, a prosperous country requires prosperous uh, cities. That's a contested it perspective. Was, you raise that in the book, in a sense, there are these differences of perspectives you know you use geographers on the one hand and economists on the other to illustrate that I know that you know that you know it's more nuanced than that but there are these kind of different views on why the economy looks like it does and ultimately what we can do so just say a little bit about that where you're coming from on all those sorts of things and now I think that plays to uh to the policy some of the policy questions and issues and policy suggestions that you make um in the final chapter sure um I mean 
Let's start with the substantive issue and then come back to the economics and geography thing. Um, the nature of deindustrialization in this country was so quick and so profound in, in, in its end game, even if it had been a long time in the making, that the economies of, 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 of many formal industrial areas are still deeply and profoundly scarred. Yeah. And, you know, I think those of us who, who work in policy, who work for prime ministers, chancellors and, and leaders, who have got choices to make, have got to work within a world where we say we cannot reinvent that, we cannot start from a different place, we cannot pretend that we're France or Germany or the Nordic countries with uh, a state that, that has the resources uh, and, and the political consent for, for massive large-scale intervention. Yeah. Uh, and that's partly because some of what we did when we did massive large-scale intervention didn't work very well, yeah. uh, even if that's true of, of liberal reform as well. So for those reasons, um, I... I've arrived at, you know, over a long period of, 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 of work in this area at, at the view, not that cities are the answer, but that there is no way back for large parts of our country in which the cities don't drive it. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, best thing, the best way of explaining this, and it's, it's, it's anyone's ever heard me talk before, we bored hearing it again, it's, it, it's to say if, if Manchester and Liverpool could do for the North and West and Leeds and Sheffield could do for the North and East and Birmingham country and the others could do for the middle bit of the country. What London has done for the southern and eastern bit, we, nearly all of our problems will be over. Blackpool will be an issue, Barrow will be an issue, Hastings is an issue. But, but that's, a, that's a better world than the world we're in. Mm -hmm. And that's the world I think uh, uh, we were trying to create in, in what I was doing in Manchester. It was what was behind the City Growth Commission. It's behind a lot of what we do now. And that's because, you know, when I started work, I did work in Basildon, uh, uh, Harlow and Luton and places like that. And they, they were not the land of milk and honey. Mm. And even if they're not quite the land of milk and honey now, they are prosperous places by yeah. the standards of virtually anywhere in the country. And that's what the London phenomenon has done. And I, I think it's what an urban-led model of growth can be. And of course there's a Cambridge that, that's, that's a counterfactual, a, a small place that's very prosperous, and there's a York that's a counterfactual, though both of them are dependent on a big city yeah, quite. nearby. Um, and that's, that, I think, is, 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 is the substantive argument that, comes, that, that absolutely uh, comes out of the book. You mentioned the economics and geography thing, and I've, I've, you know, I, I have to mention it because you haven't yet. Yeah. Um, you know, among the reviews of the book there's been, there's been one very critical one, mm -hmm. which draws attention to what was described as a straw man that I paint on that. But, you know, you know I'm a Briton, I'm a proud Briton, I've, everything I've ever done has been about trying to make this country better. And if people want to knock the book, I, I put myself up to, to, to make comments on, I'm, I'm big and old enough to, to take criticism. And there's some valid criticisms you could make of the book, not ones that have been made, mind you. The plain fact is <clears> that in the 30 years I've been in this game, um, we've had a succession of geographers and urban planners and others advise CLG, and a succession of economists and others advising Biz or, or the Treasury, and each of them has got something valuable to say. But I submit to you as well that in that period we have spent billions and billions of pounds on different initiatives now, we don't have a counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened had we not spent yeah. that money. But it patently hasn't worked. Yeah. And, you know, we've all got to ask ourselves, me as much as anybody else, what went wrong? Because our failure as a country to get a growth model that works with a public sector set of interventions that make it better, I think is one of the things that has led to the referendum result. Mm. Because we have failed to make places left behind by deindustrialization feel like they're places where people want to live and set up businesses. And I don't think we can uh, uh, go on much longer with, with um, a, a, a geography literature, whichever, whatever it says in, acad in academic journals is fine, and I you know, fight for the right people to say whatever they want in academic journals, yeah. Yeah. advising CLG ministers to do things that economists believe profoundly and strongly are wrong, at the same time, as those same economists are going into uh, the Treasury, arguing for things that have profound social consequences that are too often dismissed as externalities. Mm -hmm. Because those of us who've advised ministers, uh, who have advised uh, leaders, like you do every day of the week, yeah. have to balance those two 
two sets of considerations. And I don't think these guys are ever going to agree, nor do I think they necessarily should agree. But but why I've come up with that sort of, you know, big cities first led approach, because it's the best take I can come up with on how I square the circle between these two different sets of perspectives. And I, I say clearly on the record, I don't think it's acceptable for our country in the state it's in now, given the revolution of that vote and what could happen if we get the next 10 years wrong, mm. for us to continue this standoff in which everybody advises the people who happens to agree with them. And we don't get to the bottom of what a sensible range of things might be that, are, that, that take account of other people's epistemologies that we don't happen to care for yeah. uh, for the benefit of the country. So we'll, we'll come to some of the policy suggestions. You Just carry on with that. Well, unsurprisingly, you know, I would, I would agree with you. So how do we move forward? How do we reconcile? How do we bring about you know, the differing views? Because both argue that they're right. Both say they have you know, evidence or analysis on their, on their side. You see this in the various publications. Each puts up their, you know, their best professor or their best thinker on these sorts of things, argues it for a slight, in a slightly different um, perspective. Some emphasise fairness and redistribution, as you say, you know, that comes a stronger theme in some respects. Others argue for, you know, for concentration and recognising then we need to think about how places and people are connected in, you know, how do we, how do we resolve? How do we reconcile? You know, you're the, the policy maker in, in the middle, you know, you're the convener of these different interests. Like you've been doing this stuff for a long time. I mean, to be honest, as you, well, I'm telling you what you know, these were the issues you were dealing with in Greater Manchester, right? This is Greater Manchester writ large. This is how do we reconcile Oldham and Rochdale with, you know, inner urban Manchester and inner urban Trafford and Southland. Everything's going to central Manchester. Nothing's going to Oldham. That, you know, the model's broken. It's not really helping. I mean, that's, you experienced yeah, that for yeah, 10, 15 years. That's the argument. It's got the yeah. truth in it. So, I don't think there is a single answer to that. I mean, no. uh, I, I really do want to... Uh, I've just joined the ESRC Research Committee and uh, I, 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 want, I want to have conversations with those guys about, about doing some work in this space. Actually, yeah. I've done it once before. When I was at the University of Manchester, when I ran uh, set up IPEG, I actually <coughs> wrote to the then Economic Secretary, Ed Balls, and we put a bit of money into something called the, the Manchester Treasury Initiative that was designed to do this. It patently didn't work, but it did bring them all together <laughs> for, a, for, a, for a conference. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to that because, uh, I mean, you know, I genuinely think, um, I mean, yeah, we, people like me don't often talk about being patriots, but in the end, I think we've got to be. Our country, our country yeah, faces quite. some big choices. Absolutely right. And, and they're too important to be left for, for, to, to this sort of debate, whatever the, diff- whatever the differences are. So I think there's, there's something, got, there's a national thing to be done. Yeah. You know, if I, if I can help in stimulating that, you bet your life I'm going to. But actually, um, virtue begins at home. Uh, I think the stuff that, that we did in Manchester, that I know you've been doing with the What Work Centre in lots of other places, and I do with every place I work with, is to start with the place and evidence and facts and trying to imbue a sense of evidence-based research um, to ensure that, that whenever elected members who are not experts are taking advice, they have advice before them that is the very best it can be based on the best evidence uh, the best analysis of what what markets might might do as a result, and the best analysis of what the social co- consequences are too. And I think <clears throat> it is a sad fact that uh, too many of the of the social costs of, of of market reforms have been just treated as uncosted externalities in in lots of models. Mm. And uh, I I've never agreed with that, but I, I it's you know like everybody else I've 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 been on a journey through it. So I think. To your question about somewhere like Greater Manchester, I was having this debate uh, in the margins of the conference I spoke at this morning with your old, your own Naomi Clayton, yeah. with, with Tom Stannard of Oldham. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I think this is the debate we've got we've got to have. And you know, if 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 I'd love to do some work uh, uh, that's getting back in, into that debate, mm. opening up the the space of inclusive growth, looking at what came out of the uh, the RSA. Uh, commission and starting to look at at um, policy interventions. I say two two things. Mm. On I reference it in the book. The debate is it people or is it place? Yeah. You know, too often the economics assumes that if you fix the people, it will all be fine. Well, it doesn't. No. At least the places that are pretty damned uh, uh, benighted. Yeah. Um, all the investment we've seen in place hasn't made them places that people want to live. With very 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 few exceptions, which have to be in urban centres. Yeah. 
very yeah. largely. I think we've got to rethink welfare policy and we've got to rethink skills policy. I think um, uh, what the RSA is doing in, in the work that uh, Matthew Taylor's doing for uh, the Prime Minister is really important about yeah. looking at the gig economy and how it can be better uh, regulated. I think cities should be absolutely screaming from the rooftops for, for better regulation of the labour market so that, so that more cities have got the thing that made them. Yeah. Good quality work, which yeah. they haven't got at the moment. Yeah. Um, I think, I talk, I talk in the book, I mean, the most passionate bit of the book uh, for me is, is the bit about, about long-term unemployment. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the guilty secrets of all industrial cities is that beneath the aggregates is still the last generation caught Absolutely. by industrial change. Yeah. And their children, and their, sometimes their grandchildren, who've never had a good experience of work. Yeah. Um, that's stuff we've got to get into. I think the more tricky bit of the inclusive growth place is is, is around capital projects, yeah. where um, you know I I I I, I am a, I'm a deep skeptic that simply trying to even out the uh, the results, you know, building grey A offices in every market town is a good idea. No. You know, as I say in the book, if the best rents in t- if the highest rents in town are ten pound a square foot, and you know you need twenty or thirty pound a square foot to stack up a commercial development. Unless there's somebody you know who's going to occupy that building, if you do a spec development, you're going to be paying the difference between those two figures out of your revenue budget. Absolutely. And that's not giving money. You're not going to have for things that could make a difference. No. Skills, employment, housing, education, education, education. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or in fact, as I was saying this morning. Uh, putting the money into subsidising tram fares, yeah. driving down tram or, or bus fares so that people can c- commute mm-hmm. commute better. So again, though, that I think that points to me to the need for us to have a more intelligent, evidence-led, thorough debate, which, frankly, given the denuded state of most public authorities and how, how few people there are to do this stuff, is really hard for them uh, to do right now, which is why the combined authorities and the mayors are such a, yeah. a big uh, 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 step forward. Well, let, let's let, let, let's kind of finish on that uh, on those issues. You know, bring it right up to date, as you said. Uh, a week ago today, uh, Greater Manchester, Greater Liverpool, uh, four other places, uh, West Mids, um, voted in their their very first metro mayors. We certainly saw that. I'm sure you did. Saw that as a as a very good point, high point, not the highest we hope, but a, you know, a very positive move in trying to provide um, our cities with you know, some of the ammunition and the uh, and the instruments that they're going to need to you know to deal with their current situation. Never mind adapt to whatever's coming uh, down the line. But just you know, give us a sense of you know, how, are you you know where are you in terms of the. The Metro Mayors, you know, good thing, enthusiastic, and, and enthusiastic. what's next? Yeah, I, I, I'm very enthusiastic, and um, I think, you know, turnouts were double what I was expecting. Exactly. Quite. Uh, uh, you know, again, how many people have I heard say this is a disaster, it's, it's a disgrace, they're not high enough? Well, no, they're not high enough, but not, neither's turnout in a general election. No. And this was a year where there weren't uh, local elections yeah. in, in, in most of these places, so... You know, cut us a bit of slack. Yeah. I'd, say, I'd say over a third of uh, 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 people, only only just over a third of people voted in the Lon- in the first London election. Yeah. And now turnouts... Uh, 45, 46%. 45%, 46%. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, 25, 30% people voting. Hey, that's... Given that these are not the most powerful institutions going, you know, people, people aren't shouting from the uh, the open shore omnibus for, about the powers that are being going to these mayors. This yeah. is a, a very evolutionary start. I think that's a, a pretty good start. I think it is just a start, though, and you know the mayors are have got some powers, but they haven't got many. Um, uh, the capacity behind them in some areas is not as strong as it needs to be. Um, they, you know, I don't think they've done some of the hard economic thinking. You know, what is you know what really is Teesside for? What really is 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 the West Midlands for? We did that ten years ago when we did the Manchester Independent Economic mm-hmm. Review. Probably needs redoing. Uh, uh, um, I, I think there's a lot more work is needed. And there's still a danger, even some of those mayoralties, but especially in those places that are aspiring t- to that model or have got combined authorities, that they treat it like a lunch club, uh, a, a ruse for getting money out of central government. Yeah, quite. The change that hopefully these mayoralties embody, and it is an inadequate and it is an imperfect one, 
is the start of recognising that this is not a collection of local authorities. It's a place. place. Absolutely right. It's a big Absolutely. place with, yeah. with you know, one, two, three million people living there who cross our ridiculous boundaries every day Absolutely. of the week for myriad things. Yeah. And, and, and I think what the mayors give us the opportunity to do, and it's an opportunity that need not be taken to the 19th century cities, yeah. is to start to recognise that we can run these great cities as the places that they really are uh, and not to, to just play... Uh, 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 play at, at the games of who gets what yeah. within them and work out what yeah. what the what the right model is, what the big projects yeah. are to back. But but you know, it's whatever it is, day five, day four of of, of their of their existence, and and that's something that I think will be put to the test yeah. for the first time in three years. At which point it will still be far too yeah. soon to say. No, no, no. I, I think you make a great point, um, and certainly one that we've been making, which is for them to see themselves as. You know the leader of their place, and allied to that, get your final thoughts on this. I was quite struck in the run-up, uh, you know, to the um, to the mayoral elections, where you know if you talk to um, officials in the combined authorities, they were talking about how they were going to sort of you know try to hem in the you know the mayors, you know, control what they had access to, the policy briefings, and all the rest of it. You know, my perspective, look. Firstly, they're politicians. That's quite a hard thing to do anyway. You know, they go where they go. But actually, you make this point all the time through the book. Yeah, they are the leaders of their place, which means their mandate and their remit has to be necessarily broad because if they only focus on the economy, the social institutions, the cultural institutions, the, you know, the, the learning institutions, the innovation institutions, all of which really matter to the success of the place and for the people who live there, we won't be, you know, we won't be thinking adequately about them in the same ways we probably didn't in the, you know, in the Victorian cities of, of the past. So, you know, I think broad remit, not constrained by your policy brief, uh, yeah. you know, I think is the way to try and... I, I, and, and, you know, uh, I, there's a section in the, in the report where I talk about the cultural legacy of cities, which is something I've you know, taken an intense personal interest in. And, and I, I, one of the bits of advice I give to the new mayors is, is just to remember that the, the, the million pound pot you announced today will have a million pounds worth of benefits, which will be very small in most of these cities because they're, you know, they're 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 billion yeah. uh, a pound a year GBA economies. Yeah. Um, and do them because they matter. And, and there are things you can do with a million pounds that are worthwhile. But the real test of these mayoralties is going to be in several generations when people look back the way I've looked uh, back at people who, who built the city I grew up in and ask the question, did they leave a lasting impact? And that impact is likely to be in buildings, of which we've seen plenty this mm. last period. Mm-hmm. It's going to be in successful businesses, of which I don't think we have seen enough. Where's, where's the billion dollar companies coming out of Leeds or Manchester or, or Birmingham? Mm-hmm. That they are a bit thin on the ground. Mm-hmm. And therefore, above all, it might be about the institutions that give rise to those companies, um, institutions of learning, of innovation, of culture, of transport, mm. uh, of, of transport systems that are fit for, 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 the, for the cities that, that built the modern world. And, and that very often seems a daunting thing to say when, when you know, people have just been elected with no budgets, no powers over half these things. Yeah. But the great lesson of mayors, and it's the great lesson of, of, of the people that George Osborne took his advice from uh, in his readings when he was uh, thinking about the Northern Powerhouses, the powers you have today don't matter as much as, as the influence you want to have and the, the vision you're prepared to bring to the, the job you, you've got. And I think that's, that's the message for the mm. My guest today has been Mike Emmerich. Mike, thanks for being part of City Talks. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the Centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on Facebook and LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the Centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner, used with permission, and all rights are reserved.
Why are you still here? Podcast finished. I'm not coming back, you know. This is it. It's done. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round all day long. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com